Greetings of the seas and fenner citizens of the city-state of New Babbage. This is Mr. Osgood Underby, personal assistant and advisor to the mayor speaking to you. Clockwinder Tank, in all of his infinite wisdom, has decided that I, the most jolly of all citizens, should introduce the pieces we shall be listening to this evening. Far be it from me to deny any of the wee folk at this time of the year, especially if he signs my paycheck. Our first story you may have heard before. Mr. Mornington, who is not nearly as thick as he appears, is here to read you an uplifting tale of Christmas redemption. No, not the one about good old Mr. Scrooge, who was a fine, upstanding businessman before he squandered his fortune buying turkeys and expensive presents for his less fortunate employees each year. I have it on good authority that Mr. Scrooge died a ruined man for keeping Christmas as he did thereafter. The Goblins Who Stole a Sexton by Charles Dickens In an old abbey town, a long, long while ago, there officiated a sexton and gravedigger in the churchyard, one Gabriel Grubb. He was an ill-conditioned, cross-gained, surely fellow who consorted with nobody but himself and an old wicker bottle which fitted into his large, deep waistcoat pocket. A little before twilight one Christmas Eve, Gabriel shouldered his spade, lighted his lantern, and betook himself toward the old churchyard, for he had a grave to finish by next morning, and feeling very low, he thought it might raise his spirits, perhaps, if he went on with his work at once. He strode along until he turned into the dark lane which led into the churchyard a nice, gloomy, mournful place, into which the townspeople did not care to go except in broad daylight. Consequently, he was not a little indignant to hear a young urchin roaring out some jolly song about a merry Christmas. Gabriel waited until the boy came up, then wrapped him over the head with his lantern five or six times to teach him to modulate his voice, and as the boy hurried away with his hand to his head, Gabriel Grubb chuckled to himself and entered the churchyard, locking the gate behind him. He took off his coat, put down his lantern, and getting into an unfinished grave, worked at it for an hour or so with right good will. But the earth was hardened with the frost, and it was no easy matter to break it up and shovel it out. At any other time this would have made Gabriel very miserable, but he was so pleased at having stopped the small boy singing that he took little heed of the scanty progress he had made when he had finished work for the night, and looked down into the grave with grim satisfaction, murmuring as he gathered up his things, Brave lodgings for one, brave lodgings for one, a few feet of cold earth, when life is done. Ho! He laughed, 
as he set himself down on a flat tombstone, which was a favourite resting place of his, and drew forth his wicker bottle, a coffin at Christmas, a Christmas box. Ho, ho, ho! Ho, ho, ho! repeated a voice close beside him. It was the echoes, he said, raising his bottle to his lips again. It was not, said a deep voice. Gabriel started up and stood rooted to the spot with terror, for his eyes rested on a form that made his blood run cold. Seated on an upright tombstone close to him was a strange unearthly figure. He was sitting perfectly still, grinning at Gabriel Grubb with such a grin as only a goblin could call up. What do you do here on Christmas Eve? said the goblin sternly. I, I came to dig a grave, sir, stammered Gabriel. What man wanders among graves on such a night as this? cried the goblin. Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! screamed a wild chorus of voices that seemed to fill the churchyard. What have you got in that bottle? said the goblin. <clears throat> Hollands, sir, replied the sexton, trembling more than ever, for he had bought it off the smugglers, and he thought his questioner might be in the excise department of the goblins. <clears throat> Who drinks Hollands alone, and in a churchyard, on such a night as this? Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! explained the wild voices again. And who, then, is our lawful prize? exclaimed the goblin, raising his voice. The invisible chorus replied, Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! Well, Gabriel, what do you say to this? said the goblin, as he grinned a broader grin than before. The sexton gasped for breath. What do you think of this, Gabriel? It's... It's very curious, sir, very curious, sir, and very pretty, replied the sexton, half dead with fright. But I think I'll go back and finish my work, sir, if, if you please. Work? said the goblin. What work? The, the grave, sir. Oh, the grave, eh? Who makes graves at a time when other men are merry and takes a pleasure in it? Again, the voices replied, Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin. Uh, uh, under favour, sir, replied the horror-stricken sexton. I don't think they can. Uh, they don't know me, sir. I don't think the gentlemen have ever seen me. Oh, yes, they have. We know the man who struck the boy in the envious malice of his heart because the boy could be merry and he could not. Here the goblin gave a loud shrill laugh, which the echoes returned twentyfold. I, I, I'm afraid I must leave you, sir, said the sexton, making an effort to move. Leave us, said the goblin. Ho, ho, ho. As the goblin laughed, he suddenly darted towards Gabriel, laid his hand upon his collar, and sank with him through the earth. And when he had time to fetch his breath, he found himself in what appeared to be a large cavern, surrounded on all sides by goblins, ugly and grim. And now, 
said the king of goblins. Seated in the centre of the room, on an elevated seat, his friend of the churchyard. Show the man of misery and gloom a few of the pictures from our great storehouses. As the goblin said this, a cloud rolled gradually away and disclosed a small and scantily furnished but neat apartment. Little children were gathered around a bright fire, clinging to their mother's gown or gambling around her chair. A frugal meal was spread upon the table and an elbow chair was placed near the fire. Soon the father entered and the children ran to meet him. As he sat down to his meal, the mother sat by his side and all seemed happiness and comfort. "'What do you think of that?' said the goblin. Gabriel murmured something about it being very pretty. "'Show him once more,' said the goblin. "'Many a time the cloud went and came, "'and many a lesson it taught to Gabriel Grubb. "'He saw that men who worked hard "'and earned their scanty bread were cheerful and happy.' And he came to the conclusion that it was a very respectable sort of world after all. No sooner had he formed it than the cloud closed over and the last picture seemed to settle in his senses and lull him into repose. One by one the goblins faded from his sight and as the last one disappeared, he sank to sleep. The day had broken when he awoke and he found himself lying on the flat gravestone with the wicker bottle empty at his side. He got on his feet as well as he could, and brushing the frost off his coat, turned his face towards the town. But he was an altered man. He had learned lessons of gentleness and good nature by his strange adventures in the Goblin's Cavern. Christmas Eve, lest one be beset by ugly and grim little gentlemen who will drag you to Hades and back. Now, let us leave Mr. Mornington at his overpriced hotel and take ourselves southeast to Clockhaven to listen as Miss Julie Ginsburg reads our next tale. Miss Ginsburg was, for reasons only a woman could fathom, bamboozled by a gentleman of idleness into purchasing a disreputable old public house on the vermin-infested eastern end of Prince de Car, known as the Gangplank. 
considering how many other owners that bar's been through, the ownership deed must suffer from deja vu. They do, however, serve a singular drink that they brew themselves. They shut the establishment down for an entire day, after their men return from a jaunt to the mountains, and the odors that wafted from the bakery chimneys on that particular day are most peculiar. One day I shall discover what they put in that punch. A Christmas Fantasy with a Moral by Thomas Bailey Aldrich Her name was Mildred Wentworth, and she lived on the slope of Beacon Hill in one of those old-fashioned swell-front houses which have the inestimable privilege of looking upon Boston Common. It was Christmas afternoon, and she had gone up to the blue room on the fourth floor in order to make a careful inspection in solitude of the various gifts that had been left in her slender stocking and at her bedside the previous night. Mildred was in some respects a very old child for her age, which she described as being half past seven and had a habit of spending hours alone in the large front chamber occupied by herself and the governess. This day the governess had gone to keep Christmas with her own family in South Boston, and it so chanced that Mildred had been left to dispose of her time as she pleased during the entire afternoon. She was well content to have the opportunity, for fortune had treated her magnificently and it was deep satisfaction, after the excitement of the morning, to sit in the middle of that spacious room with its three windows overlooking the pearl-crested trees in the common, and examine her treasures without any chance of interruption. The looms of Kashmir and the workshops of Germany, the patient Chinaman and the irresponsible polar bear had alike contributed to those treasures. Among other articles was a square, box, covered with mottled paper and having an outlandish, mysterious aspect, as if it belonged to a magician. When you loosened the catch of this box, possibly supposing it to contain bonbons of a superior quality, there sprang forth a terrible little monster, with a drifting white beard like a snowstorm, round emerald green eyes, and a pessimistic expression of countenance generally, as though he had been reading Tolstoy. Or Schopenhauer. This abrupt personage, whose family name was Heliogabalus, was known for simplicity's sake as Jumping Jack. And though the explanation of the matter is beset with difficulties, it is not to be concealed that he held a higher place in the esteem of Miss Wentworth than any of her other possessions, not excluding a tall wax doll, fond as Eccle, with a pallid complexion and a profusion of blonde hair. Titania was not more in love with Nick Bottom the Weaver than Mildred with Jumping Jack. It was surely not his personal beauty that won her, for he had none. It was not his intellect, for intellect does not take up its abode in a forehead of such singular construction as that of Jumping Jack. But whatever the secret charm was, 
it worked. On a more realistic stage than this, we see analogous cases every day. Perhaps Oberon still exercises his fairy craft in our material world and scatters at will upon the eyelids of mortals the magic distillation of that little western flower which will make or man or woman madly dote upon the next live creature that it sees. For an hour or so, Mildred amused herself sufficiently by shutting Heliogabalus up in the box and letting him spring out again. Then she grew weary of the diversion and finally began to lose her patience with her elastic companion because he was unable to crowd himself into the box and undo the latch with his own fingers. This was extremely unreasonable, but so was Mildred made. How tedious you are, she cried at last. You dull little old man, I don't see how I ever came to like you. I don't like you any more with your glass eyes and your silly pink mouth always open and never saying the least thing. What do you mean, sir, by standing and staring at me in that tiresome way? You look enough like Dobbs the butcher to be his brother, or to be Dobbs himself. I wonder you don't up and say, steaks or chops, mom. Dear me, I really wish you had some life in you and could move about and talk with me and make yourself agreeable. Do be alive. Mildred gave a little laugh at her own absurdity, and then, being an imaginative creature, came presently to regard the idea as not altogether absurd, and finally, as not absurd at all. If a bough that has been frozen to death all winter can put forth blossoms in the spring, why might not an inanimate object, which already possessed many of the surface attributes of humanity, and possibly some of the internal mechanism, add to itself the crowning gift of speech? In view of the daily phenomena of existence, would that be so very astonishing? Of course, the problem took a simpler shape than this in Mildred's unsophisticated thought. She folded her hands in her lap and, rocking to and fro, reflected how pleasant it would be if Jumping Jack or her doll could come to life, like the marble lady in the play, and do some of the talking. What wonderful stories Jumping Jack would have to tell, for example. He must have no end of remarkable adventures before he lost his mind. Probably the very latest intelligence from Lilliput was in his possession, and perhaps he was even now vainly trying to deliver himself of it. His fixed, open mouth hinted as much. The land of the pygmies in the heart of darkest Africa, just then widely discussed in the newspapers, was of course familiar ground to him. How interesting it would be to learn, at first hand, the manners and customs of those little folk. Doubtless, he had been a great traveler in foreign parts. The label in German text on the bottom of his box showed that he had recently come from Munich. Munich! What magic there was in the very word! As Mildred rocked to and fro, her active little brain weaving the most grotesque fancies, a drowsiness stole over her. She was crooning to herself, fainter and fainter, and every instant drifting nearer to the shadowy reefs on the western coast of nowhere, when she heard a soft, inexplicable rustling sound close at her side. 
Mildred lifted her head quickly, just in time to see Heliogabalus describe a graceful curve in the air and land lightly in the midst of her best Dresden china tea set. Ho, ho! He cried in a voice preternaturally gruff for an individual not above five inches in height. Ho, ho! And he immediately began to throw Mildred's cups and saucers and plates all about the apartment. starting to her feet. Stop it! Oh, you cross little girl, returned the dwarf with his family leer. You surprise me. And another plate crashed against the blue-flowered wallpaper. Stop it, she repeated. And then to herself, it's a mercy I waked up just when I did. Patience, my child. I'm coming there shortly to smooth your hair and kiss you. Do, screamed Mildred, stooping to pick up a large Japanese crystal which lay absorbing the wintry sunlight at her feet. When Heliogabalus saw that, he retired to the farther side of his tenement, peeping cautiously over the top and around the corner, and disappearing altogether whenever Mildred threatened to throw the crystal at him. Now Miss Wentworth was a naturally courageous girl, and when she perceived that the pygmy was afraid of her, she resolved to make an example of him. He was such a small affair that it really did not seem worthwhile to treat him with such ceremony. He had startled her at first, his manners had been so very violent, but now that her pulse had gone down, she regarded him with a calm curiosity and wondered what he would do next. Listen he said presently in a queer, deferential way as he partly emerged from his hiding place. I came to request the hand of Mademoiselle Yonder. And, nodding his head in the direction of Blondella the doll, he retreated bashfully. Her? cried Mildred, aghast. You are very nice, but I can't marry out of my own set, you know, observed Heliogabalus, invisible behind his breastwork. This shyness was mere dissimulation, as his subsequent behavior proved. Who would have thought it? murmured Mildred to herself, as she glanced suspiciously at Blondella, sitting bolt upright between the windows, with her back against the mop board. Mildred fancied that she could almost detect a faint, roseate hue stealing into the waxen cheek. Who would have thought it? And then, addressing Jumping Jack, she cried, Come here directly, you audacious person. And she stamped her foot in a manner that would have discouraged most suitors. But Heliogabalus, who had now seated himself on the lid of his box and showed no trace of his late diffidence, smiled superciliously as he twisted off a bit of wire that protruded from the heel of one of his boots. This effrontery increased Miss Wentworth's indignation and likewise rather embarrassed her. Perhaps he was not afraid of her at all, in which case he was worth nothing as an example. 
I will brush you off and tread on you, she observed tentatively, as if she were addressing an insect. Oh, indeed, he rejoined derisively, crossing his legs. I will, cried Mildred, making an impulsive dash at him. Though taken at a disadvantage, the mannequin eluded her with surprising ease. His agility was such as to render it impossible to determine whether he was an old young man or a very young old man. Mildred eyed him doubtfully for a moment and then gave chase. Away went the quaint little figure, now darting under the brass bedstead, now dodging around the legs of the table, and now slipping between the feet of his pursuer at the instant she was on the point of laying hand on him. Owing doubtless to some peculiarity of his articulation, each movement of his limbs was accompanied by a rustling, wiry sound, like the faint reverberation of a banjo string somewhere in the distance. Heliogabalus may have been a person with no great conversational gift, but his gymnastic acquirements were of the first order. Mildred not only could not catch him, but she could not restrain the mannequin from meanwhile doing all kinds of desultory mischief, for in the midst of his course he would pause to overturn her tin kitchen, or shy a plate across the room, or give a vicious twitch to the lovely golden hair of Blondella, in spite of, perhaps in consequence of, his recent tender advances. It was plain that in eluding Mildred he was prompted by caprice rather than by fear. If things go on in this way, she reflected, I shan't have anything left. If I could only get the dreadful little creature into a corner. There goes my tureen. What shall I do? To quit the room even for a moment in order to call for assistance at the head of the staircase, where, moreover, her voice was not likely to reach anyone, was to leave everything at the mercy of that small demon. Mildred was out of breath with running and ready to burst into tears with exasperation when a different mode of procedure suggested itself to her. She would make believe that she was no longer angry, and possibly she could accomplish by cunning what she had failed to compass by violence. She would consent, or at least seem to consent, to let him marry Blondella, though he had lately given no signs of a very fervid attachment. Beyond this, Mildred had no definite scheme when the story of the fisherman and the evil of Freet flashed upon her memory from the pages of the Arabian Nights. Her dilemma was exactly that of the unlucky fisherman, and her line of action should be the same, with such modification as the exigencies might demand. As in his case, too, there was no time to be lost. An expression of ineffable benevolence and serenity instantly overspread the features of Miss Wentworth. She leaned against the wardrobe and regarded Jumping Jack with a look of gentle reproach. I thought you were going to be interesting, she remarked softly. Ain't I interesting? asked the goblin with a touch of pardonable sensitiveness. No said Mildred candidly. You're not. Perhaps you try to be. That's something, to be sure, though it's not everything. Oh, I don't want to touch you, she went on, with an indifferent toss of her curls. How old are you? Ever so old and ever so young. Truly? How odd to be both at once. Can you read? Never tried. 
I'm afraid your parents didn't bring you up very well, reflected Mildred. I speak all languages. The little folk of every age and every country understand me. You're a great traveler, then. I should say so. You don't seem to carry much baggage about with you. I suppose you belong somewhere and keep your clothes there. I really should like to know where you came from, if it's all the same to you. Out of that box, my dove, replied Jumping Jack, having become affable in his turn. Never, exclaimed Mildred, with a delightful air of incredulity. I hope I may die, declared Heliogabalus, laying one hand on the left breast of his mainspring. I don't believe it, said Mildred confidently. Ho, ho! You are too tall and too wide and too fluffy. I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but you are fluffy. And I just want you to stop that ho-hoing. No, I don't believe it. You don't, don't you? Behold! And placing both hands on the floor, Heliogabalus described a circle in the air and neatly landed himself in the box. He was no sooner in than Mildred clapped down the lid and seated herself upon it victoriously. In the suddenness of her movement, she had necessarily neglected to fasten the catch, but that was a detail that could be attended to later. Meanwhile, she was mistress of the situation and could dictate terms. One thing was resolved. Jumping Jack was never to jump again. Tomorrow, he should be thrown into the Charles at the foot of Mount Vernon Street, in order that the tide might carry him out to sea. What she would not have given, if she could have sealed him up with that talismanic seal of Solomon, which held the cruel marine so securely in his brazen casket. Of course, it was not in Mildred's blood to resist the temptation to tease her captive a little. Now, Mr. Jack, I guess I've got you where you belong. If you are not an old man this very minute, you will be when you get out. You wanted to carry off my blondella, did you? The idea. I hope you're quite comfortable. Let me out, growled Heliogabalus in his deepest bass. I couldn't think of it, dear. You are one of those little boys that shouldn't be either seen or heard. And I don't want you to speak again for I'm sitting on your head and your voice goes right through me. So you will please remember not to speak unless you are spoken to. And Mildred broke into the merriest laugh imaginable, recollecting how many times she herself had been extinguished by the same instructions. But Mildred's triumph was premature, for the little man in the box was as strong as a giant in a dime museum. And now that he had fully recovered his breath, he began pushing in a most systematic manner with his head and shoulders, and Mildred, to her great consternation, found herself being slowly lifted up on the lid of the box, do what she might. In a minute or two more, she must inevitably fall off, and Jumping Jack would have her. And what mercy could she expect at his hands after her treatment of him? She was lost. Mildred stretched out her arms in despair, gave a shriek, and opened her eyes, which had been all the while as tightly shut as a couple of morning glories at sundown. She was sitting on a rug in the middle of the room. 
Though the window panes were still flushed with the memory of the winter sunset, the iridescent lights had faded out in the Japanese crystal at her feet. She was not anywhere near the little imp. There he was, over by the fireplace, staring at nothing in his usual senseless fashion. Not a piece of crockery had been broken, not a chair upset, and Blondella, the too fascinating Blondella, had not a single tress disarranged. Mildred drew a long breath of relief. What had happened? Had she been dreaming? She was unable to answer the question, but as she abstractly shook out the creases in the folds of her skirt, she remarked to herself that she did not care, on the whole, to have any of her things come to life, certainly not jumping jack. Just then, the splintering of an icicle on the window ledge outside sent a faint whiteness into her cheek and caused her to throw a quick, apprehensive glance toward the fireplace. After an instant's hesitation, Mildred, unconsciously dragging Blondella by the hair, stole softly from the room, where the specters of the twilight were beginning to gather rather menacingly, and went downstairs to join the family and relate her strange adventure. The analysis of Miss Wentworth's dream, if it were a dream, for later on she declared it was not, and hurriedly gave Heliogabalus to an unpleasant small boy who lived next door. The analysis of her dream, I repeat, shows strong traces of a moral. Indeed, the residuum is purely of that stringent quality. Heliogabalus must be accepted as the symbol of an ill-considered desire realized. The earnestness with which Miss Wentworth invoked the phantasm and the misery that came of it are a common experience. Painfully to attain possession of what we do not want, and then painfully to waste our days in attempting to rid ourselves of it, seems to be a part of our discipline here below. I know a great many excellent persons who are spending the latter moiety of life in the endeavor to get their particular jumping jack snugly back into its box again. I remember once when I had a dreadful little man in a box. Did I dictate terms then? Did I tell him not to speak unless spoken to? No, and no. I was generous. I nursed the poor creature back to health. And how was I repaid? Oh, never mind. That is not for you to hear. Where were we? Ah, yes. Yes, one must be cautious in what one wishes for, for truly there will be grim and ugly little men who will jump up out of their boxes and smash all your carefully laid ski- plans. Before this next segment, I feel I should extend a preemptive apology of sorts. As I am sure all of you are aware, 
His Royal Highness Emperor Ezra Crumb II is quite frequently under the weather. <clears throat> On the day the Emperor was hauled into the library to do his annual charity reading for the urchins of the city, his eminence had recently been fished from the Canal Django and was warming up near a fire with a hot toddy or six. How do I know this? Because it was left to me as the mayor's personal assistant to locate his highness and see that he kept his appointment as the mayor could not be torn away from from well, from whatever it is he does all day. Twas the night before a new Bobbit Christmas by Mr. Salazar Jack. Adopted from Twas the Night Before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore. Twas the night before Christmas when all through the city not a creature was stirring, not even a kitty. The stockings were hung by each turnpipe with yeah, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The urchins were nestled all stuck in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And the clockwinder, resting from Underbeast's trap, had just settled down for a long winter's nap. When out on the cobbles there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my cot to see what was the matter. To the steamworks first floor I flew with fleet feet, out through the front door and into the street. The wind blowing briskly did little to muffle what the street lamp revealed as the source of the scuffle. When what to my wondering eyes did it show? But a wayward green trolley wheels deep in the snow. With her little old boiler belching smoke pea soup thick, I knew in a moment I had to be quick. The coals from her fire in danger of dousing could be saved if the trolley succumbed to some rousing. Now trolley, I said as I ran up the street, Knee-deep in the snow to this car I would meet. You must get back in line with your rails on the track. Put this stumble behind you and never look back. New Burbage is counting on you to keep steaming. Keep your coal fire burning. Keep your beaming light beaming. But now, with her wheel axles deep in the snow, though she wanted to move, she just couldn't go. And then in a twinkling I heard in the street the stepping and clomping of many-sized feet. The citizens of Babbage had heard the loud din and donned jackets and scarves as the sound drew them in. Each gentleman, lady, urchin and beast, from north and from south, from west and from east, 
slowly walked toward the trolley still stuck in the snow. How to write the stuck trolley, they didn't quite know. Mr. Underby chanted and canted and spelled, but results from his mystic charms never quite gelled. Lady Breezy, her skirt twirling mad in the gale, tapped her bumbershoot's tip on the car's snowy wheel. Loki and Myrtle and Skylar and Jimmy tried to wedge a small board neath the axle so primmy. They huffed and they puffed, then they started to pout, when they realized the trolley might never get out. That's when Clockwinder Tank, a right thoughtful old gnome, thought he'd figured a way for the cart to head home. With a wink of his eye and a twist of his head, he reached down with his hammer, then his pipe wrench instead. He spoke not a word, but went straight to work, feeling deep for the valve which he turned with a jerk. And with nary a stain nor a spot on his clothes, the steam from the sewer pipe arose. Yes, it rose! With the snow melting quickly from her wheels, I could tell that our trolley was free, and she rang her strong bell. Then we said to each other as we set all things right, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. And pray, what lesson do we learn from that particular rhyme, children? We learn that Tank gets all the credit for saving the day once again, whilst humble civil servants are forced to toil silently in the shadows, doing the genuine labor, and yet being disparaged in public as a, a pulp story villain. Hi folks, this is Victor Mullen, better known as Vic Mornington and Second Life, wishing everyone in Second Life and in the Steamlands a very Merry Christmas and a fantastic New Year. Merry Christmas, New Babbage, and a very happy, healthy, and safe New Year. This is Breezy from Piermont Landing, and the Lotus and the Varenian wishing you and yours only the very best in 2000. A Merry Christmas and was hail from Garnet Saltery. Wishing you a happy and safe Yuletide from Stormy Stillwater. Merry Christmas to all my friends in New Pavage. <laughs> from Jimmy Bronick. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas from Liable. Hello, this is Dr. Darian Mason wishing all of my New Babbage friends a very Merry Christmas. This is Groverk wishing everyone in New Babbage a safe and happy holiday. This is Edward Pierce wishing you the most festive compliments of the season from both Christine and myself. May Steam Santa fill your larders as well as your coal cellars, and may you have a happy and prosperous New Year. Hello to all friends of the Victorian lifestyle and Second Life. 
especially New Babbage, dealers with field speaking, owner of Cushion Furniture in Terrier. I would like to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and hope to see you around at New Babbage or especially at Academy of Industries where I have my shop. Enjoy your second life and see you next year. Und für alle Freunde aus dem deutschsprachigen Ausland, Jelos Whitfield von Cushion Furniture and Interior, wünscht euch allen eine wunderbare Weihnachtszeit und einen guten Rutsch ins neue Jahr. Und ich hoffe, dass wir uns alle im nächsten Jahr wiedersehen in New Babbage oder insbesondere auf Academy of Industries, wo ich meinen Laden habe. Schaut mal vorbei und ähm, ich hoffe, ihr habt eine wunderbare Zeit. Liebe Grüße, euer Biolas. This is Emerson Lighthouse. And Junie Ginsberg. Wishing all of our friends in New Babbage and around the Steamlands a very happy holidays. And a very steamy new year. Oh, 2013. Come on down. Hey, um, isn't Dr. Mason Jewish? Yes, I am Jewish, but Hanukkah's over already. Lunar calendar, all that. In Ulzar, before ever the Burgesses forbade the killing of cats. They dwelt in old continents. Ah, damn it! Detected upon the persons of idle desks before him might crap the hand. This episode of Tales from New Babbage was produced by the citizens of the city-state of New Babbage for Radio Riel in December of 2012 and is licensed under Creative Commons 3.0, attribution non-commercial share alike. The music box pieces were arranged and performed by Cannoli Capellini and are available at Capellini Fine Furnishings on Bow Street in the Canal District of New Babbage. All other music was written and performed by Kevin MacLeod and is available at incompetech.com. More information about the broadcast and download links to old episodes are available on the web at talesfromnewbabbage.blogspot.com. Keep building. Did I just do a commercial?